Chapter 19 After the signing of the Round Robin, the Rattlesnake enjoyed a prosperous season under the swarthy arm of Jack Wagon. As the crew had agreed, they put into Charleston for provisions, and while there, Jack and Tan managed to eke out a few sailors of dubious ethical declination to bolster the crew. When they raised sail for open sea again, they were more than forty hands strong and felt like new men. With new sailors aboard, and some green enough to look youngsters even to Finn, she discovered that she felt more weathered and proven among her peers. She wasn't the fresh new tar on deck any longer, and Finn cherished her newfound sense of belonging. Despite her oft-repeated protests, the entire crew remained adamant that she keep her berth in the captain's quarters, and to make matters worse, Topper had taken to calling her Captain Button in friendly mockery, and even went so far as to yell, Captain on deck! every time she stepped out of the cabin. Much to her outward dismay and inward delight, the affection was soon adopted by the entire crew. If a stranger stood on deck and observed, he'd think himself aboard an odd vessel indeed, where the young Captain Button, if the quartered berth and crew's calling were to be believed, was not only often seen with swab in hand or working the ropes like a common tar, but was, of all things, a woman. With nothing left to hide, Finn stopped minding her hair and cutting it short, it grew wild and hung long about her shoulders if she didn't keep it tied up with a cord. Months at sea had sun-darkened her skin, and she wondered if Peter would even recognize her when she managed to find her way home again. At their parting with Creech, Finn pleaded with Jack to put in at Savannah so she could check up on Peter. But Savannah, Jack grimly informed her, was now under British blockade, and trying to put the rattlesnake within fifty miles of the port would be risking more fight than they could fend. So Finn had to console herself with memories far and faint, and she wrote letters to Peter every chance she found. She longed to hear back from him, but it wasn't safe to give an address for fear the British would follow. So always her tidings were vague and imprecise. What news they heard of the war was seldom encouraging. George Washington and his colonial army had met with defeat after defeat, and the British were certain of their eventual victory. Rumor hinted at a possible alliance with France that could turn the tide. But as yet, no one had seen French colors flown from incoming warships. If the landward war went ill, however, it wasn't for lack of action by the Rattlesnake. They raided fourteen ships in three months. Mainly their prey was of the British merchant fleet, but once they'd boarded and commandeered a frigate of the Royal Navy when they caught it unawares in a fog bank near Chesapeake. Tan and half the crew sailed it into Plymouth and sold it as a trophy to a local politician. Of course, the great success of the Rattlesnake and her privateering did little to endear them to the Royal Navy. They sometimes spent as much time running from the Union Jack as they did running it down. In the late autumn of 1776, the Navy was so thick in the waters of the West Atlantic that Jack sailed them down and around the Horn of Florida, where they peddled in the Caribbean for the winter. But when the spring returned to the colonies, so did the Rattlesnake. The entire crew missed the waters, small towns, outer banks, and shorelines of the eastern coast, and all were glad to return, British or no. They found upon their return that not only had the rattlesnake's reputation grown, but so had Finn's. Tavern talk was quick to fix upon something as scandalous as a woman employed as a sailor, and the rattlesnake was rumored to have a woman as a captain, no less. Some claimed she was Anne Bonny's ghost, and others charged she was Mary Reed's long-lost granddaughter but all agreed she was a fearsome captain that gave all hell and what for to the British. Finn rolled her eyes at such things and had to endure constant teasing from the crew. 
They knew better than to believe the barroom exaggerations, but they seemed to take great joy in being on the inside of the joke, and often furthered the lies themselves. She once came upon Topper regaling a barroom full of men with ridiculous tales of her ferocity and cunning. He was standing on a table with his hands outspread, and his audience gathered around like children listening to a campfire yarn. I seen her shot through the heart and fall dead as driftwood. Seen it with me very eyes. We give her body to the deep, but the devil himself feared she'd mutiny and throw him down from the throne of hell. So he set her adrift from the burning lake, and she sailed back into the seven seas upon a raft of the damned that was lashed together with naught but the tatters of rotten souls. The men gathered round Topper gasped and swore, and one made the sign of the cross. That's right. The burning prince of the pit cast her out of his hall, and her hair still burns fiery red to tell of it. When her gaze falls on the Union Jack, fire leaps from her eyes and she smells a brimstone. When once I was standing too close, I nearly got burnt myself. Topper tugged at his shirt sleeve and sniffed it. Still smells of the devil's fire. Smell it. You there. Hey, smell it for yourself. The young sailor stood up and leaned over cautiously to smell of Topper's shirt. He took one sharp sniff and his eyes snapped shut and began to water. The men around him looked on goggle-eyed and called on the saints to save them. Finn rolled her eyes. She had no doubt that Topper's shirt stank badly enough to bring water to a man's eyes. Smells of the devil, it does, cried the boy. Then Topper spotted her standing at the back of the room. He jerked himself upright and snapped his heels together. Captain Finn Button on deck! Every head in the room snapped around, and dozens of wide, fearful eyes stared at her in horror. In the far corner of the room, one poor, drunken sailor dropped to his knees, shouted a Hail Mary, and begged the Lord to protect him. And then they began to laugh. (laughs) Ha ha! You had me going, Topper! I thought it was really her! The fear and terror drained out of their faces when they saw she was nothing more than a slight girl without any sign at all of an aura of fire and brimstone. Within moments, every man in the room was in the throes of laughter. Ha ha! We thought you was Captain Button! They shouted to her. Burn you, Topper! Someone threw a mug at Topper's head, and he ducked. He climbed down from the table and hurried out of the room, dodging another thrown mug and a loaf of bread as he went. Finn chased him out and caught up with him in the street. Was all that really necessary? She asked. Topper giggled and shook with glee. No, but it surely was fun to get him riled up. He slapped Finn on the back, and she caught whiff of what had already made one man cry. You really must wash that shirt, Topper. Topper roared with laughter. Back aboard the rattlesnake, Finn pestered Tan at every opportunity for further fencing lessons, and he was quick to take up where they'd let off, which more or less meant swatting Finn about like a child. But week after week, Finn improved, and by the time the ship was again prowling the coast of New England, she was no longer ending her lessons with bruises and bleeding fingers. In April of 1777, the crew agreed to slip into Wilmington to take on provisions, dry up a tavern, and have news of the war. Jack ordered the anchor dropped in the harbor, and the crew went ashore in skiffs to keep the ship as far as possible from snooping officials who might wonder after the captain or seek news of his whereabouts. Finn's first order of business, as usual, was sending a letter out to Peter. Nut waited quietly as she scratched away at the parchment on the table. She told Peter about the Caribbean and its beaches, long and white as the moon, lapped by clear waters and cool wind. She filled him in on what fortune they'd found in aiding the war, and hoped sincerely that the British would be gone soon, and she'd be free to come home. The letters brought back memories that were almost far enough away for her to forget. The writing brought them closer, reeled them in from the gray waves that tried to drown them. Memories of Bartimaeus, Peter, 
her bell tower. It was a different world to her now, a different life. Peter would have finished building the house long ago, but as much as she longed for it and hoped for it, she couldn't quite imagine herself realizing it. It was too far away, too different. She loved the sea and her ship. She loved the men she now thought of as family. She didn't like to think about leaving them behind when the war ended. She didn't have to consider the breaking away when she'd left the orphanage, left Peter. At the time, it was her only choice, but she had choices now, and she couldn't reconcile the two desires. She shook it out of her mind. Such choices were far and away from her now. She finished the letter, wished Peter love, and folded it up. Tan joined them in the rowing skiff, and they paddled their way toward the waterfront through canyons formed by tall ships. On all sides, ships loomed high like walls of creaking stone. They winded a path to the dockside, tied the boat fast, and climbed up into the city. Tan grinned them a farewell once they were ashore, and Finn, with nut in tow, struck out on her own. She made straight for the postmaster to send her letter on its way, and then set her mind to leisure and luxury. The city was full of the smells and sounds of land-bound life that Finn often forgot when far out at sea. The earthy scent of animals and the clatter of wagons, the solid sound and feel of your feet upon the ground, the coming and going of a multitude of other people. The din of thousands of conversations floated up from the streets and out of the buildings to form a subtle chorus that one never quite noticed until it was gone in the dark of night or swallowed up by the quiet expanse of the sea. The sounds and people made her nervous at times. She spent all her life in the country or on the rattlesnake away from such clangor and bustle. She felt like an intruder in the city and was anxious to be away. As they crossed the town square, Finn noted in the wind the sickening smell of death. It made her shiver. She looked around, hoping to see a dead chicken or dog, but she knew instinctively that it was something else. On the seaward side of the square, framed against the open ocean by two buildings, was the source of the odor. The bodies of two men, hanged and decaying, swung heavily like wet flags in the wind. One was little more than a skeleton, desiccated and leathery. The corpse must have been hanging there for months. The other, however, was no more than a few days old. Its eyes were freshly plucked out by carrion, and the sockets stared back at her, gaping and empty. The mouth was pulled open in the quiet groan of the dead, and below the corpse a wet spot spread upon the ground where blood and worse had dripped into a fetid pool. A dog lapped out of it a gruesome meal. Finn shuddered and felt her stomach rise. Nut stared at the display as if it were no more unusual than sides of beef hanging at market. A makeshift sign hung on the beam that suspended the bodies. It explained simply, Pirate. A flood of memories came back to her. Memories of Bartimaeus smiling as he fell. The rope's cruel jerk. He'd have hung like this, her gentle Bartimaeus. They'd have made a spectacle of him. But Sister Carmeline humbled herself and begged them otherwise. At the time, she'd been too stricken and numb to consider what fate Carmeline had begged him away from. Now she understood. How had he been capable of such a life? An outlaw, a criminal. Had he been friends with Creech? Friends? When he'd yelled at her, the one time he'd yelled at her, it was because she'd forced him to dredge up his past and talk about it. In that one moment, she glimpsed the fire and anger in him. Maybe he'd had that murderous glint in his eye for years at a time while he worked his piracy with Creech. She tried to imagine him that way, as a man who deserved the same end as the bloated and rotting corpse swinging in the square. But she couldn't. 
Her Bartimaeus was no pirate. Whatever had happened to him in London, whatever blessing Reverend Whitfield had spoken upon him, had remade his person entire. Even when he had come for her in the woods and murdered a man, he never looked the pirate to her, yet he had paid the price of piracy. Even gentle Bartimaeus had not been able to escape his past. He swung like a common criminal, and he smiled. He tried to change himself, but in the end he hadn't changed a thing. And still he smiled. Finn pushed away the memory. She had murder in her past, too. Somewhere out there British soldiers were looking for her. If they caught her, she'd swing. She'd rot in the town square. She'd be as dead as Bartimaeus. Come on, Nut. I don't like the smell. She grabbed Nut and herded him off, away from the dead, and didn't look back until the smell was gone. She wasn't sure she had it in her to smile at that end, and she never meant to find out. They shopped in the market and gorged themselves on fresh, sweet fruits of every color. Finn filled her pockets and nuts with rosy peaches before they wandered on. Nuts, stuffed all over with fruit, looked even knobbier than usual. The peaches, bulging from his every pocket, gave the impression someone had beaten him silly with a stick and raised peach-sized welts all over his body to tell of it. His face didn't betray a whit of the ridiculous-looking body it was attached to, and Finn could hardly suppress her laughter. They wandered up the street and found a theater with doors open and a herald announcing the imminent commencement of the latest play by a local playwright, something dubiously hailed as Petticoats and Corn. Finn grabbed Nut by a peach-laden arm and dragged him toward the door. Captain Button, called a thick voice from up the street. Will you stop that? Finn said and rolled her eyes at the title. Topper walked toward them, swatting at his shirt as if he'd just discovered it was dirty. Small puffs of dust billowed away from him with each swat. Finn, there's a boxing ring, and listen here, these boys fighting? They got nary a knuckle to match the way I seen you throw them fists of yours. Come down yonder with me and pick a fight with a few of them old boys. We can lay down our money and collect gold on the dollar when you put them in the dirt. What you say, Captain? He grinned at her and rubbed his hands together as if he could already feel the money rolling in. I don't think so, Topper. I'm not in the mood to get my head knocked in. Oh, come on, Finn. You can wallop these boys in no time, not even break a sweat. The herald at the door to the theater gave one last call for seating. Maybe later. We're going to see this play. Topper's face drooped. Hey, why don't you come with us? Might be good for you. Topper raised his eyebrows and looked up at the building, then looked down at the playbill and scratched his ear in consideration. A play, huh? Nah, you go on. I can't read anyhow. He looked disappointed and walked off in the direction he'd come from. Finn opened her mouth, thinking she'd tell him that watching a play didn't require that one know how to read, but decided it wasn't worth the trouble. She grabbed Nut and pulled him through the door behind her. A snobbish usher with greasy hair escorted them to their seats and retreated with his nose in the air just as the curtain rose. The stage was set like a cornfield, and a woman in a preposterous yellow dress with half a dozen hoops and acres of petticoats was skipping through the rows and swinging a picnic basket. When she finally came to a stop and set her basket down, she bemoaned her lack of a desirable suitor and was then captured by a man dressed as an Indian who tried very hard but failed to be menacing. Despite the great promise shown by the opening scene, the dark theater and faraway voices put Finn directly to sleep. She awoke to find Nut poking her in the shoulder and calling her name. Finn rubbed her eyes and felt a rush of irritation that she'd slept through the play. Then she turned her mind to wondering who the man standing beside her with crossed arms might be. It turned out to be the snobbish, greasy-haired usher, and he was overtly vocal about the theater's policy on sleeping, not to mention snoring, during the performance. 
Finn also noticed that he seemed to quite despise anyone looking suspiciously vagrant. This qualified him in Finn's regard as someone to be quite despised himself. He attempted to grab her arm and escort her out of the building, but she shook him off with a grumbled curse and explained that had the play been worth anything at all, she'd not have been sleeping through it. She exited the theater with a satisfied sniff, wondering what the play had been about in the first place. She remembered none of it. Finn picked a peach from one of Nut's pockets and devoured it as she stomped off down the street in search of the boxing ring. Being kicked out of the playhouse had worked her into a furor, and she was ready to go to blows with someone. If she could make some money doing it, then so much better. There was a small multitude gathered around the roped-off corral where two unshirted men stood sweating in opposite corners. The cheers from the crowd, however, would not have delight. Someone was interrupting the boxing, and the onlookers were none too happy about the delay. Standing upon a box opposite Finn was a white-haired man dressed in black, the apparent focus of all the unrest. Finn pushed closer to discover what the disturbance was about. "'Oi, Finn!' called Topper through the den. He was supporting Tan as he limped out of the crowd. Tan's face was bloodied and bruised, and if Topper had let him be, he'd have fallen over in a heap. "'You're too late, Finn!' grumbled Topper. Tan put himself in the ring, and the other fella put him right back out. Lost the last dollar in my pocket, and the parson aims to break up the fun before Tan even has himself a chance to win it back. If anyone else is like to get boxed, it's going to be that preacher. Topper turned away and half-carried Tan down the street while Finn pushed closer to the ring. Throw him in the ring, I says, shouted a man from the crowd. Ah, let's see him turn his other cheek, called another. As Finn got closer, she was able to separate the parson's voice from the shouts of the angry crowd. Turn every one of you from your evil course, and amend your ways, so says the Lord. But men, they say, we will live as we choose and follow every one of us our own evil, stubborn minds. And the Lord declares, I know your countless crimes. There will be a wailing in all the streets and cries of anguish in every public square when I pass through your midst. The crowd hurled jeers at the parson from all directions, but he would neither flinch nor cease nor speak with anger. He reminded Finn of Hilda and how so often she'd towered over her and waggled her nose about fighting with the boys. Finn had rolled her eyes then and all but sworn hate for Hilda in time since, but now she felt a pang of shame that she'd treated her with such disrespect and was ashamed that she stood doing nothing to stop the mob from abusing the parson. Tan had roused and shaken himself away from Topper to come wobbling back toward the ring. The crowd parted and cheered him on. He was clearly in no state to be fighting, though, and Finn intercepted him. She detoured him safely back out of the crowd and away from the boxing ring despite his protests. When they got to the corner, Tan had regained some of his senses and suggested they cure themselves of the parson's sermon by finding themselves a tavern to drain. Finn agreed and set out with Nut and Tan to secure a table at the nearest establishment in order to exercise whatever local spirits might haunt the place. The tavern they happened upon was the Merry Barrel and Sconce. The shingle over the door depicted a barrel of rum overlit by a candled sconce, though neither appeared to be terribly merry. It seemed a rather nice outfit, set a few blocks landward of the waterfront, and if nothing else it stank less than the surrounding buildings. Finn ventured to think it might be cleaner as well, but in the torchlight of the evening she couldn't be certain. At the very least they found the haunt to be full of all manner of spirits, from Kentucky whiskey to Spanish rum and no sooner had they knocked back the first round than Tan erupted in an awfully bad sailor song, and the entire room joined him, while Finn sipped her cup in quiet delight. Nut studied the end of his nose, pressing on it now and again as if to test its solidity. Hours later, after Tan had led the establishment in more choral derangements than Finn was wont to count, 
Jack stepped through the door and looked over the room. He spotted Finn and dropped into the seat opposite her. You seen Tan? he asked. Finn laughed and kicked at something under the table. A drunken moan answered, and Jack leaned back to look beneath the table. There lay Tan in a happy ale-induced slumber, looking as peaceful as a babe in a cradle. Jack rolled his eyes in irritation and turned back to Finn. He noted Nut's presence with a grunt. We got a problem, he said quietly. Finn set her mug down and leaned in. What sort? I just come from the dockmaster's office. They keep a list up of known pirate ships so they can seize them if they seize them. Reward money and what all. Well, what's that got to do with us? Well, sitting right on top of the list is the snake, Jack said with a nervous look around. Well, we're not pirates. Certainly the British Navy had bounties out for them, but those would carry no weight in a port held by Continentals. Jack wrinkled his brow at her and shook his head. The list says rattlesnake. Crew wanted for mutiny and piracy. Finn felt the blood drain out of her face. He's alive. I don't know how, but the bastard's alive, and he's turned us in for pirates. The snake will be wanted in every lawful port on both sides of the Atlantic. Pass the word to any of the boys you see to get back to the snake quick as they can. And without making a fuss, we'll slip out just as soft as we slipped in. Finn nodded. I'm going to track down the rest of the boys. Get Tan to the docks. I got a boat waiting to ferry us out to the snake. Keep quiet. Keep your wits. I'll see you there. Jack stood up, kicked Tan once, and shook his head at the answering groan as he walked out the door. Finn and Nut spent the next twenty minutes trying to goad Tan back into the world of sobriety. He moaned and snored in protest until finally they'd kicked, yelled, and slapped at him enough, and he managed to get to his feet. With a little help from Nut, he staggered out of the merry barrel and sconce. The evening had grown full into night, and the dimly lit streets provided them cover enough that Finn's fears were hidden in the darkness. The closer they got to the docks, the more a feeling of rising anxiety grew. Images of dead pirates loomed out at her from alleyways and shadows. More than once, Tan and his state would take to shouting at some threatening shadow, and just as often, laugh at a merry one, and Finn felt sure his noise would give them away to some official stalking them in the darkness. Only a few hours ago, they'd been about the town without a worry in the world, and no one had known them. But now, with the threat of the law looming over her, she felt that hidden eyes were spying on them every step of the way. When they chanced to meet strangers in the street, Finn bowed her head and held her breath. They were looking at her suspiciously. Surely they knew her. Ridiculous, Finn reminded herself, and forced her eyes up to meet the passers-by, smiling a polite hello. Ho oh, there! shouted a voice out of the dark. Finn's face went cold. Out of the shadows trotted Topper, and she breathed a sigh of relief. What she thought were shadows cloaking his face revealed themselves upon closer inspection to be patches of dirt. Oh, you scared me half out of my wits, Topper. You talked to Jack? Aye, we're headed for the docks. You seen the rest of the crew? Yeah, I pointed Jack to them. They'll be along. Never thought I'd find myself running from a pirate's bounty, I tell you. He winced that he'd spoken so loudly and looked around to see if anyone had heard. Satisfied they were still alone, he lowered his voice and continued. I don't deserve this, Finn. Never did naught but honest sailorin, and damn the blood in creature's veins if his treachery swings me on a gallows pole. In silent haste, they made their way back to the docks. When they arrived, they found others of the crew waiting in the shadows. Few spoke, but the subject at hand was heavy in their midst. Nut was quiet as ever, but clearly addled by the tension in the air. He nervously hopped from one foot to the other. A rowboat emerged from the darkness and slipped up beside the dock. Art Thomason sat inside and guided it toward them. 
When the boat thumped against the dock, he threw a rope up to Topper and motioned them to come aboard. Topper flipped a coin to Art and proclaimed the dockside service to be a travesty. Art rolled his eyes and caught the mock tip. Finn felt a cold chill rattle down her spine. The boatman was paid, and they pushed off into the darkness. What about Jack and the rest of the crew? she asked. He'll be along, said Art. Soon as you're aboard, I'll head back for the others. Finn turned away from the dim city and looked out into the dark umbrage of the bay, straining her eyes for the first glimpse of the rattlesnake. Apart from the shore, and yet distant from the ship, they floated in a hinterland of shadow and nothingness, as if light and earth had been swallowed away. Only the lap of the waves and the splash of the oars gave any assurance that they were still in the corporeal world. The darkness made Finn dizzy. Her mind groped for up and down, for direction, but found only uncertainty in the cloak of night. At last, against the black sky, a dark hole appeared in the stars, the silhouette of a ship. The great shadow grew as they approached it, and when they were within a few strokes of the oar, a lantern flickered to life. Art brought the boat along the side, and they climbed up. As Finn clambered onto the deck, she heard a heavy thump against the hull. At first she thought it was the rowboat, but when the knock came again it felt too heavy for the small craft. It sounded like a larger boat, like the sound the rattlesnake made when it pulled up alongside another ship. The sound came again, and she was certain it wasn't the rowboat. She ran across the deck to the starboard side, and there, tethered to the railing, was a small frigate bumping gently against the rattlesnake's hull. A shout rang out behind her. She turned and her stomach dropped. Coming from every hatchway on the ship were British soldiers. It was a trap. Swords flashed and muskets came to bear. The crew, drunken and unawares, scarcely put up a fight. Finn ran for the captain's cabin to fetch her sword and Betsy. Several soldiers started after her, but she danced around them. When she reached the cabin door, it swung open before she could reach it. She took a step backward. Out of the shadows within stepped a tall figure with curly white hair and murderous eyes. The man's hand held a wrinkled parchment, her map. It seems your lies are boundless, Mr. Button, he said as he flourished the map in his hand. It was old Tiberius Creech. Finn seethed. You bastard. Indeed. But save your insults and your breath. You'll require both when the British have you and I'll be certain to enjoy the thought as I spend the bounty for your capture. He motioned to a group of soldiers, and they seized her. Finn fought against them and received only bruises and ill treatment for her trouble. They clapped chains about her wrists and ankles and kicked her to the ground. Creech stood over her, smiling. Don't worry, Miss Button. You'll have that beastly Mr. Wagon to keep you company in hell just as soon as they stretch his mutinous neck. I expect Mr. Thomason will be bringing him to me shortly. Finn cursed under her breath. Art had betrayed them. So refreshing to find good sailors these days, isn't it? Now, if you'll excuse me, we'll be clearing the deck to await the next catch. He turned away and addressed a British officer. She's all yours. Get her out of my sight. As the soldiers dragged her across the deck by her chains, she cried out once, hoping to warn Jack praying he'd be within earshot. A soldier brought his boot down on the back of her head, and the world went dark. 